And we're back for another episode of Startup Hustle, a podcast for entrepreneurs by entrepreneurs. If you want to start, own, or build a business, then you're in the right place. We bring you the real truth about what it's like to take something from concept to launch, from growth, innovation, experience, failing, or winning big, we've got you covered. So let's get down to business with another episode of Startup Hustle, brought to you by Fullscale.io. And we're back, back for another episode of Startup Hustle. Matt DeCourcy here to have another conversation I'm hoping helps your business grow. And if your business does grow and your startup gains traction and keeps moving on down the road, you might get to have a conversation about an exit, an acquisition, the big prize, the big check in most cases is what that means. And we're going to talk all about startup exits and try to explain the who, what, where, when, how, all of it. Now, before we get too far into that, today's episode of Startup Hustle is sponsored by SEC Advisors Group, the experts in helping others buy and sell small businesses. Whether you're a fellow entrepreneur trying to buy the company of your dreams or you're trying to sell your business before setting off on your next adventure, SEC Advisor Groups helps small to mid-market businesses accomplish their transaction goals. Go to secadvisorgroup.com. There's a link in the show notes. I've used them. I'm happy. Sheila's even been a guest on the show, so I think they'll do a great job for you. With me today, I've got Patrick Sullivan. Patrick is the CEO and co-founder of Bonsai. You can go to joinbonsai.co, joinbonsai.co. Company's out of New York, but Patrick's joining us today from Raleigh, North Carolina. Patrick, welcome to Startup Hustle. Thank you, Matt. I'm glad to be here and uh, glad to get, join in on this discussion. Yeah, we're going to dive into it, man. Now, I like to say that no one tells the backstory of themselves and the company's better than the CEO and founders. So what is your backstory, Mr. Sullivan? Sure. So I've, I've been a native New Yorker, born and raised in the Bronx, but now I've transplanted to North Carolina. And I've had the fun uh, opportunity of having three exits in my uh, my career out of tech in New York, two of which I founded, one a company called Rightsflow, Google acquired in 2011, and another one, uh, Source3, Facebook acquired in 2017. And in addition to that, I was involved in a private equity acquisition as a vice chairman of the board and uh, an operator in a company for one of the five years. Um, and so we had sort of some great fun experiences. I'm happy to share some of the learnings from both the, the, the corporate side and the private side of uh, exits. But, uh, you know, I'm a hardcore entrepreneur uh, and I founded a new company called Bonsai. Uh, Bonsai is an online marketplace for career advice over one-to-one -one video chats. Um, and given the climate in the market today, you can imagine a lot of people need advice. And I'm happy to share some advice today on M&A transactions. Yeah. And you know what? I have, a, I have a question about that before we jump into startup exit. So at Join Bonsai, and there's a link for that in the show notes. So if, if someone wants career advice, they can get that from other people in an industry. Is that, I mean, how does that work? Is that... Uh, is that transactional? Is it membership-based? It's, it's a transactional platform. On one side of the marketplace, you have a supply side of people giving advice, and the other side, the marketplace, people are seeking advice. 
and we let them, the person who's seeking advice set the price. And it could be everything from a cup of coffee to a lunch to a dinner, just like normal networking happens and occurs in the market. It could be free as well uh, to individuals that don't have the ability. And we're seeing all levels of, of interactions, both CEOs of company using Bonsai to mid-level management who are doing it for multiple reasons and they toggle their motivations. And it really gives access to networks and it really streamlines and makes it a little bit more efficiency by also having a transaction element involved as well. Interesting. So now you mentioned a couple of exits. I mean, you sold a couple of companies to, you know, small time players like Facebook and Google. Um, I can imagine that was an interesting process. And when we talk about what is a startup exit, an exit is a term for when investors get a return on their investment. Uh, and usually in a venture backed startup, it could be the sale of something. And it's usually a payday, as we mentioned, uh, these uh, liquidation or uh, acquisition type events uh, come in many shapes and forms and often like a snowflake, no two are, are really quite the same. Sometimes the founders retain uh, some ownership, sometimes they stick around, sometimes they don't. We're going to get into all of that. Now, when it comes to just explaining what a startup exit is, uh, Patrick, you know, having done it three, and congratulations on that, by the way. Um, you know, most people want to do it once. Having done it three times is really says a lot. But how do you, if someone asks you what a startup exit is, I mean, how do you, how do you describe that? You know, for me, the most important thing was getting that company that we built the first one acquired and then more importantly, integrated into the platform of YouTube stack. And that to me is part of the success of being acquired, not only getting the payday, which has changed our lives forever, but also the opportunity to now go into an organization and have some sort of impact um, like we did with YouTube. To me, that was the success. It's not just getting acquired and an aqua hire, but using the technology, using the payment system and the royalty side that we had built that YouTube acquired and put into their, you know, their ecosystem. So that was to me what is success from the acquisition. Similarly with Facebook, we're now the global operations for all things music rights. And that to me is what I see as success in addition to the payday. But, uh, you know, I've seen other acquisitions that just get folded and, you know, tossed to the side and the team just becomes another part of the integration. And it could have been for defensive or offensive reasons. I like to think both of my exits were offensively and defensively beneficial both to YouTube and Facebook who wanted to acquire users and keep users. Is it, is it fair to say that no two exits and acquisitions are the same? I, I don't, I haven't seen them yet. <laughs> and both uh, yeah. the experiences of going through a Google acquisition from uh, a Facebook acquisition were pretty night and day. Um, the onboarding post acquisition were also quite different. Uh, and I learned, you know, from my first exit, I had to not only get acquired, but then had to fight for, you know, engineering and resources to help integrate the company. Facebook was a little bit more, um, I think they had a lot more experience at the time because they were you know, had a few years of learning from Google because a lot of people at Facebook are ex Google. So it was a little bit more of a smoother transition. Um, and for me, that was so critical the second time around. It's like, how do we transition and become part of the Facebook, you know, ecosystem? So for startup founders, you know, in the beginning, you're trying to raise funds, you're trying to get people on board, you're trying to do a lot of things. And a common, a common question is, well, what's your exit strategy? And honestly, it's easy to sit there. You're going, I mean, I'm trying to get this thing started. I'm not, you know, like my exit strategy. What? What? That's like, you know, trying to determine the plays you're going to call in the fourth quarter of a football game. And you don't know what the score is. You don't. Yeah, I really don't even know anything. You might even know what team you're on at that point. 
you know, why, why is an exit strategy important? And is that something that, I mean, can you have it too early? And is, you know, I, I don't know. I mean, let's talk about that before we get into what happens in between. Yeah, you know, I, I do think it's critical that you as a founder should be thinking about who are your strategic partners and potential one day acquire from the start and start talking to them. I, when I first started my first company, I had a, a list of potential acquirers when we were first like brainstorming the concept of what the business could become. And I think it's just a good thing. I, I also think from a strategic partnership, and that's a relationship where who could be, you know, who would use you as a customer is something to think about then become an acquirer. The second company, the day I launched the company, all I was thinking of was acquisition, M&A, because I had the experience of knowing the impact you could have in a big company like Google. And if you're able to build a product that is valuable to them, they might acquire you. And that's what happened with Facebook. And the second, we were a lot more pristine and focused on the M&A. We weren't, we, when we were acquired by Google, we had a significant amount of revenue as a business. And that, they, you know, their, their words were, that's a rounding error to us on a daily transaction in the market. You know, and I was like, why? I, I put three years, we were doing 20 plus million dollars in revenue. And, I, and they said that was, and that, I, that was a good lesson that I learned because the second one around, I wasn't going to build a revenue business. I want to build a product that was become highly acquirable for a big company like a Facebook, like a Google, like a Microsoft. And I started the conversation right then and there from the day one of the company, knowing that I'm going to build something. With Bonsai, my new company, I'm actually know all the exit opportunities, but I'm not thinking about it as focused as I was with the first two companies. This one, I want to build a consumer facing business, standalone business, but become valuable enough that people are interested in talking about bonsai from the corporate level of, of my background. So people are already taking a look at the company just because who we are and the success we have. But right now I'm not mentally thinking about it the same way I did with my first two companies, which I was hyper-focused from day one thinking who could acquire me. So I, I think uh, in regards to the rounding error, I think maybe Ice Cube said it best when he said, big bank, take little bank. <laughs> um, so yeah, that's kind of the way it goes. Now you talk about that and I mean, I'm really not joking. Cause when you look at company, you know, megacorps, uh, the, the 20 years ago, neither existed. And now Facebook and Google are two of the biggest companies in the world. Um, you know, some, some acquisitions for them. I mean, and they've probably, I, I don't even know the numbers done hundreds and a lot of them fly below the radar you don't even hear about them. And they're just like, like when Patrick's talking about a rounding error, he's saying that 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 acquisition cost and that however many millions of dollars that are occurring, like they might actually lose that temporarily rounding up or rounding down during the accounting process, and which, uh, which is humbling, I guess, and also exciting and motivating because it leads you to believe there's a lot, a lot of meat left on that bone and where that check, you know, where those checks came from. Now we're talking about an exit strategy and, you know, one of the things that's tough when you're first getting started and you're trying to understand all of this, everything from investment to getting started to cap tables to liquidation preference. And now I got to think about selling the company and I haven't even started the company. And, you know, there's a whole lot of complexity that comes in there. It's usually during the exit where uh, a lot of your errors along the way are uncovered, um, the way you took in money, the way you set up different kinds of things. What are some of the lessons that you've learned during acquisition, during the exit process that you look back at and you're like, man, I probably should have done that a little different. Yeah, and, and as, as the first company, it, it was everything. It was all the paperwork. It was I, 
unfortunately, fortunately, I incorporated another business under a subsidiary, a parent company. That was like, what are you doing? And I think keep, keeping your, your your all your paperwork in order, all the things that you need to hand over, whether it's through your investment, when you're going through a diligent date and data room, as they call it, and you're providing all these documentations, we probably did a lot of it wrong, you know, chasing signatures, having that organized. Uh, the second time we were very clean. Everything was pretty polished. My lawyer who had went through the first acquisition at Google was set up, setting us up for the second one with the mindset that we're one day we'll get acquired. We, we sort of had that mindset, but keeping all the data, the documents, the data, you know, all organized into, you know, a data center that you can easily give to your new investors and potentially your acquirer. But the first company we made so many different mistakes. We didn't have signatures. We had to go back, you know, get uh, signed off some people that were no longer employees of the company that we didn't sign that, you know, the, you know, protections and all these little things that legally these big companies are like, we're not going to acquire you unless you get this all done. Um, and so, you know, don't, you know, take all those documents that you create your employee agreements, make sure you get signatures, you organize them, you have everything in a place that you can easily transfer someone who's going to take a look at the company, whether it's investment or acquisition, but we made more like paperwork mistakes. You know, we didn't know where the documentations were and little things like that, um, that were super important when you're getting acquired. So when you talk about little protections and stuff like that, are you talking about IP protections, different kinds of agreements that just say that those that may have seen or held the keys to the castle have given them back or acknowledged that they won't use them? Correct. Correct. Well, those aside, everything that protects the company because they don't want to have any exposure from any employee or any group of individuals that might allow exposure without the documentation. So it's just... You know, do do it right. There's there's great resources out there. Like even like our lawyers, Cooley. Uh, I think it's Cooley.com. They have like a you know a guidebook to startups and entrepreneurs of all the things you need to think about. You know the tax benefits. You know the small business tax benefits, SQRB, something like that. You know where you you qualified stock. You know you want to get all these things that will benefit your company uh, as well. But um, yeah, just really getting all the protections for the company um, and having signed off from everybody along the way. So with me today, I've got Patrick Sullivan, CEO and co-founder of Bonsai. Go to joinbonsai.co to learn more about what he's up to. Three successful exits under the belt. And as we mentioned, exits are not the same. Uh, we're here to try to explain startup exits a little more. So when I mentioned they're, they're all different, they are, because a lot of times what's different is the relationship that the acquiring company has with the founders and the employees of the existing companies. So let's talk about that for a little bit. In, in any of these acquisitions, did you, did you, were you uh, involved in an earnout, or did you stay around with the team along the way and talk a little bit about how that, how that works and what that looks like in many cases? Sure. So from experience, the, you know, that we call the golden handcuffs where you get acquired and it's a, a buyout, on the equity side, which is they fully will buy out all the investors and all typically the payment to the uh, shareholders, which could be employees as well. And then they'll do what we at Google did, which is called like a stay bonus. They'll throw a, a real significant amount of money on top of the acquisition, separate from the investors, a new like sort of uh, cash flow um, uh, cash that would put you as you know, compensation and stock and some bonuses to keep you there for four years. 
Um, and that's kind of where I lived within the Google acquisition. And, you know, it was like this, you get that big payday and then, you know, there's a whole nother payday coming to you over the four years, including your salary and stock refreshes that, that were really amazing. Uh, I'd left my, after my third year at Google, because I was said, I bet my, I bet against the market and said, Hey, I can do this again. And rather than sit there for that one more year of earnout and salary and bonuses, I could probably do this again. We did it in two years, which was pretty uh, incredible for us. Uh, the second time around, I knew and they knew that, hey, Patrick, do you really want to work at Facebook? And the answer we both knew was no. So I got a lump sum payout um, and it was uh, you know, a short-term agreement, just stayed on long enough for the integration to happen. An amazing experience, amazing leadership at Facebook. But for me, that you know, I was not interested in staying for four years or working, you know, anywhere in you know California. or was traveling back and forth with uh, the stage state stage of my life. So I decided that I'd rather uh, you know do the the one big cash earn out. All the other employees that stayed got the golden handcuffs, which was significant for four years for them. I, I there's so many words that the investment and business world has decided to dub golden, most famously, probably golden parachutes, yeah. golden handcuffs, keeping key members of the employees uh, of the employee base tied to the company. The reason that they do that is a company doesn't want to acquire another company and then watch everyone that works at that company just disappear. Um, occasionally, they'll come in and scoop some people out and 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 send them on. They will free up their futures for other endeavors is a polite way of saying that. Um, a lot of times when it comes to ex, ex, exits and acquisitions, there is the company being acquired as a parallel. And uh, we've used it and have no basis for this comparison, but a loose example of a like a payroll company like Paychex might acquire another company that they could use to easily market to their 600 or 700,000 existing business clients, which means that here is a complimentary product to what we offer. And you can sign up for it by clicking this button. They already have a financial relationship with them, so on and so forth. In some of those cases, uh, acquiring parties might actually want to thin out and make even more profitable the new company. And in some cases, they want they want to apply the golden handcuffs. Uh, these are all, once again, back to why exits and everything are different. One thing I do know about an exit is that consulting experts is a good idea. And I want to thank SEC Advisor Group for sponsoring today's episode. SEC Advisor Group not only understands what it takes to buy and sell small businesses, they also bring with them a strong network of both buyers and sellers to match up your particular acquisition needs. Visit SEC Advisor Group, that's S-E-C-K, advisorgroup.com to learn more about finding the right buyer or seller for your business. Uh, one thing I've learned is that uh, acquisitions aren't cheap both usually for the people buying and the legal costs of it. So uh, lawyers love acquisitions and I'm sure SEC advisor group wouldn't mind helping with yours. So, okay. So we, we've taught, we throw a lot of terms out here. Like we've got all kinds of different exit options. We have mergers and acquisitions, aqua hires, IPOs, things related to intellectual property, possibly milking the cow or the cash cow itself. Um, <laughs> How are any of these different from each other, Patrick? You're buying or selling your company. That's the binary one, right? Yeah. Well, you know, my first exit uh, was a merger. So we merged into uh, an entity owned by Google. Um, for me, you know, it was, it was uh, you know, 
nothing different other than on paper. Um, going through a private equity transaction was very financial driven, different than a sort of strategic acquisition from Google to buy us, stick us into YouTube, Facebook, to stick us in the music group within Facebook and Instagram properties. And going through a private equity transaction for a healthcare company that I was involved in, that was very financially motivated on like, what is the multiple, you know, was it EBITDA and all the things that were super important for them where se separately from Google, Facebook, they didn't care about EBITDA, they didn't care about revenue, didn't care about anything that other than can we plug you into our business and, you know, have a hundred X impact into YouTube and Facebook's, you know, uh, consumer user experience and, 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 uh, you know, rights management, uh, operations that they acquired. So totally different. One was financially driven. One was strategic, uh, based. And one, when I did go through the Google one, it taught me a lot about how these big corporations think about acquisitions, you know, at the, you know, the hundred million dollar acquisition stage and what's the value of the team they're buying the process sort of about around how we operate our business and the technology stack as well, you know, and you want to be as valuable to all three and the private equity was very financial driven, very revenue focused and uh, sort of different behaviors or conversations you have with the, the buying party. Yeah. And mergers are often going to fall into that category. Like I was mentioning where you're kind of buying anywhere, taking two or more companies and you, you smush them together. And the reason that some of those uh, can, that, that mergers occur is well, you can relieve a lot of redundancy. And I'm a big fan of the hub and spoke model where you have a hub that performs X amount of financial business and managerial tasks, and you have your spokes that attach to it. So, and I've been involved in this uh, long before I was an entrepreneur, actually, uh, kind of when I first started being an adult and working, I was involved in a private equity. I worked for a company that a private equity group bought six different chains and put them together into one. And that created a hell of a lot of chaos in the beginning because we actually had five or six people that all did the same job at these different companies. So that level of redundancy. And now look, from a human standpoint, this part's a little insensitive because you become a number and you stay or you go. But these mergers, from, especially from the private equity standpoint, they have the ability to cut costs and do a whole lot of stuff. And it, it can end up being pretty significant. So where an acquisition is, is typically more along the lines of we want it, need it, and have to have it for some different reason. So there is a, I, I do enjoy that they always, those, the M&A, they always come together, but there is, I mean, is it fair to say that there's a quite a bit of difference between a merger and an acquisition? Yeah, I, I would say I think it was just on paper how Google acquires companies, but yeah. it was it was an acquisition because we were we were purely put into an operational business of YouTube and Google Play at the time to support those businesses. And uh, I can't say I merged with YouTube at all, other than how Google uh, managed their their approach from a legal perspective out of Delaware. But coming in as an acquisition and a team. I think at the time, I think it created like where we got friction was I think the pre-existing team that was existing within YouTube was like, oh, who are they? You know, this is an army coming in, 25 employees that are going to come into our our established music operations and and start to, you know, dictate because, you know, what direction we're going to go. And so it was a little political at the time. And, you know, we, we were of the like, let's why can't we all get along kind of philosophy? 
Um, and it, but, the, but I think it was still friction. There was like friction there and we had to win the people over and knowing that, you know, you know, at the time at YouTube, they didn't have 25 people in the music org in say the United States. It was just, they were building it out. So it was a little bit of tension, but I, I, there was, I it wasn't in, in, in like a financial transaction. I, there was no redundancy. They were, they were bolting on a, you know, a, a hub to, to their, you know, you know, to their pre-existing car. Um, so it was a little different. And then what you, and Facebook, it was fresh. They were just building out. It was very early stages, music, org and and you know the, the thesis was these are the, this is the guy this is the team that built the winning you know race car before and they know how to win the race the formula one race and so that's what they were like why are we going to build something and you know one thing that as an entrepreneur too you we also want to kind of get a sensibility of how these corporations think they always think build by build by announce how long would it take to build this and we were very fortunate that both youtube and facebook realized that it would take about a year to build with this you know, systems that they were acquiring and team had in place. And it was very much like, we, we should buy this. And you want to be in that. Can they easily build this? Because, you know, big corporations like Facebook and Google can build these things. But there's a little there's a little secret sauce that we had that we thought was valuable as well on how we operated the business that they weren't as, you know, good, good understanding of to do it themselves. Um, but I think you should be thinking as an entrepreneur, you know, what it's like build by. Uh, both of my, my experience have been acquisitions, uh, my third one was, uh, you know, private equity. I'm not there anymore. So, but it, that was more of a roll up, uh, th thinking they're going to roll up the healthcare space around, you know, consumerized uh, flexible spending accounts. Yeah, when it comes to the buy versus build mentality, a lot of people think that a huge company like Facebook or Google, because they have an army of people. Oh, oh, well, they've got so many people, they'll build it 10 times faster than we did, which isn't always the case. I mean, Warren Buffett's pretty famous for having once said nine women don't make a baby in one month. And uh, a lot of times acquisitions are driven. It's a it's a jump. It's a skip forward in the time frame. And um, another thing, too, is whenever you decide to build it rather than buy it. Um, you're still rolling the dice that you'll actually build it successfully within the time frame that you're hoping you did. And uh, as someone that employs 200 software developers at fullscale.io, I'll tell you what, uh, getting software out the door on time, it's a challenge even for the the, the best, the best emators, because <laughs> you never really know. Yeah. Um, I, like <laughs> the best I don't, well, I just made it up. I literally <laughs> just kind of rolled off the tongue. I was, I almost caught it on the way out. And I was like, you know what? I, my bestimation is that this probably won't be on time. Um, you know, when, and that, and that's really true. Cause you know, that, that's the thing is big companies, they, they'd rather like, why not just, you know, you, you scoop this thing up, it's known it's there, it works. And you've got people that know how to work it. Now, one of the things that another term we mentioned was acquire. Sometimes acquisitions occur because the acquiring company just wants the people. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I mean that's, that's not uncommon. Yeah, that's that's you know these these companies think that way. They're very mindful of acquiring the talent, you know, and you know it's a it's a common theme across those uh, organizations because if you pull together a great team of people, that's valuable. They're, they're going to want to acquire that. You know, uh, my my third startup, you know, having done it so many times before, the team is such a critical component of whether you're going to get acquired or you know acquired. But for me, it was such an important piece to the puzzle. 
uh, of what we're doing and you want to make sure they're valuable. And, there, and there's, there's, there's an approach and there's logic of how they think about headcount acquisition of cost and a build. And, you know, so that's about some people, you know, may end up in, and it's not a bad thing. Some people think that if you're not acquired fully by the tech, you're not, you know, you didn't do a great job, but you know, there's nothing wrong with aqua hires. And I've, I've get, guided a few friends through that process who've gotten in that situation, I think, and, and I think it could be a good outcome. You know, the key with, you know, all startups is you want to just keep moving forward and creating value, value, and then making sure people are aware of that value, whether it's partnership, business development, or it's a potential one day, hey, would you like to, you know, have a conversation on M&A, you know, or, or AquaHire, you know, um, you know, that's, that's important. And, you know, I think to your point, Matt, earlier, when you're starting your company, you're doing everything and thinking about exits is like, what? I'm just trying to think about my first customer, you know, or my product. Trying, I'm trying to not go out of business today. Yeah, exactly. And, like, you know, and, and, and you know, but, but my advice is make sure you're, you're on the radar always of the potential people that you one day could have conversations with to get acquired. That's just my advice. And I've been very fortunate that I, I was very thoughtful on that the second time around, even with the first one. Um, and, and, and who knows, become a business partner with them first. And then maybe one day to be like, wow, there's a super value in this company, this startup. And, and maybe we'll one day have those conversations. Don't be fearful. Cause I've seen entrepreneurs are like, I don't want to, I don't want to talk to my, you know, them, they might, they might do what I'm going to do, you know, and you know, the realities of running software, it's not always that easy. You know, you got other priorities, other investments that you're doing that the resources are going towards. You know, my business partner and I at FullScale have invested about $1.4 million over the last couple of years into other startups. And, you know, we get people that want to pitch us on that. And sometimes so I want you to sign an NDA before I give you my pitch. And we laugh, we yeah. laugh. And they're like, why? We're like, I don't have the passion for whatever it is that you do. Like, we're not running off with your idea. We're busy doing this. And we want you to stay busy doing this. And yeah, so that's kind of interesting. All right. So still on the subject of startup exits explained. And by the way, like if you need startup exits explained, we all did. We all did. It's fucking complex. There's so much shit you need to know and it's changing. There's all kinds of different structures and whatever, but probably the most well-known exits, the good old initial public offering. It's probably the most complex of all of them as well. But um, as far as an IPO, I mean, I think a lot of people want to ring that bell on Wall Street and that seems fun and sexy. I personally think that that's okay. I think that there's a hell of a lot of different kinds of transactions that are going on and other kinds of exits and a lot of the other things that we mentioned that can have a much shorter path to completion a lot less bullshit and scrutiny. Um, I mean, I'm not saying, well, sure, if I can take a company to IPO, that's great. But I, I think it's probably fair to say that most deals are done well before that stage. Yeah, I, I, you know, I do think about it, but I don't think about it I, in my past companies. This one, obviously, I'm very mission focused on keeping this company and becoming a household name in the sort of the business community and, and, and university and, and graduate programs. I want, you know, I want, you know, the, the Holy Grail is like bonsai me, which is happening right now. And people have the ability to do that, but, you know, going for an IPO, I've seen good and bad out of that. I've been part of companies I've gone IPO and it was a bad, bad idea. And they went back private. I've gone through that life cycle. Um, you know, it's all for, you know, your strategy, but there's a great market of mid-level, you know, mid-cap market where you can get exits and liquidity and, 
you know, be meaningful enough to change your life. Um, and for me, I've gone through those experiences and it's, it's life-changing. Um, it's humbling too, because when you come with uh, wealth and, uh, cash that you've never imagined, you know, you have to be very careful because, you know, one thing I, I did learn with my first company, you know, it's, it's easy getting rich. It's really hard staying rich, <laughs> you know, and, and I don't mean rich, you know, I just mean from the financial stability, you know, because you need more money, more problems, you know, and I learned a lot there, of my there's a, there's a, there's an economic principle called Parkinson's law that says that in general, people's expenses will rise to meet their income. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, my accountant, you know, yeah. My yeah. first exit, my accountant said, "Take five hundred thousand dollars and go crazy." And I was like, 500000 thousand—that's a lot of money." I'm like, like seven million dollars later, where I'm like, "Where did it all go?" I'm like, "I, I took nope. it, I took it as advice," <laughs> but you know, it's 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 humbling. But you know, uh, the opportunity for an IPO definitely has a lot of different hooks and legalities around and uh, responsibilities, other than getting a straightforward M and A that I've gone through. <laughs> People ask me a lot. They they're like, "Well, what's your goals? What do you what's your, what are you aiming for in the future?" And depend uh, that that can change depending on what mood I am, what I'm, what mood I'm in. But I always wanted to not be the guy that had made millions because that had means you probably don't have them yeah. anymore in many cases. And yeah, that can be rough. Um, and you know what? You see it a lot. You really do. I mean, and, and everything from athletes to entrepreneurs, and uh, we train ourselves to believe that that money train uh, comes all the way in. I remember, I, you know, I, I left slash exited a business at the end of 2016. And honestly, it took me a good two years to really get something moving the way that we did at full scale. And that's not uncommon. So yeah. you can't, you, you never know when your next, when you're, when the next train's going to arrive. Now, I'm from Kansas, Kansas City, most specifically. And uh, in my world travels, people often ask me if we have cowboys and if I live on a farm. No, I live in a fucking city, but that doesn't mean I don't know about cows. Now, two things that we, why am, so why am I talking about cows, people? Because there's terms like milking the cow and a cash cow. And these are real things. So sometimes you have companies and products and things that generate positive revenue. And you will sometimes see companies get to a point and they say, you know what, we're not going to push the envelope when it comes to developing new and cutting edge stuff. We are going to milk this cow and they will sometimes literally cut half of their expenses and kind of just wait it out. I mean, they might churn a little bit along the way, but they have highly sticky products. They keep them up, they keep them running and they decide to milk that revenue or do a number of different things. Sometimes this occurs in acquisitions too, especially when big companies are acquiring other companies. And sometimes it's just because they want that revenue and they need to show that's a form of them showing growth. Do you have any experience with either of, the, either of these situations? Yeah, the, the only the only one was with the private equity acquisition in the healthcare space. That was a cash cow. So the guy was printing money, and it was definitely uh, an acquisition that was, you know, not in you know strategic, but more of the financial uh, transaction. Like this, and and this company is you know printing money in a way that's 
you know, valuable to a private equity firm. And that was very deliberate. Uh, and it was all about the revenue. Um, again, the other two experiences I've had at Google Face, you know, their, their, their only revenue was YouTube revenue and Facebook revenue. That's how they were measuring, you know, success. And they, wouldn't, they didn't do that against my companies um, because they knew that, you know, defend, you know, Larry Page had coined the, the idea of a, the toothbrush test. Is this something that you would do twice a day and using Wrightsville was necessary for YouTube to exist? Also, it was part of class action lawsuit settlements. So part of the class action required them to sort of operationalize the space that we were in and they acquired us for that. And Facebook similarly was getting out in front by knowing they were going to need to do something similar for the music industry and have an operations like our business. But, you know, they're very strategic. The other was very deliberate, very financial, as you would use, uh, you know, it was, it was printing the money and it was, it was a cash cow for that private equity sector. We have many things to talk about after we hit the re we turn off the record button. I worked in the music industry in and around it for 15 years. Wow! Uh, wrote a, wrote a book on the subject. Yeah, but I that wasn't what we were here to talk about. So we have some interesting stuff there. Now, once again, today's episode of Start a Puzzle was brought to you by Sec Advisors Group, making your merger and acquisition process as smooth and hassle-free as possible. Be sure to check out how Sec Advisor Group is helping early stage companies plan and execute their, their successful exit. And you can learn more about it by visiting their website at Sec Advisor Group, that's S-E-C-K. Look, there's a link in the show notes. How about that, people? Um, Sheila's great. She's been on the show before, a local attorney. Um, as the son of an attorney, I got to tell you, no one hates attorneys more than other attorneys, which is kind of funny. Um, but Sheila's a good one. I've really enjoyed working with her. So uh, I end my episodes start a puzzle with what I call the founders freestyle. And why do I say my episodes? I'm not the only host of the show. I'm sure if you've listened regularly, you figured that out. You can join Matt Watson and I on Wednesdays as we make our way through a 52 part series on how to start a tech company. On Tuesdays, tune in for Amazon and e-commerce advice from Andrew Morgans, the CEO and founder of Marknology. And on Thursdays, join Lauren Conaway, the CEO and founder of Innovate Her. If you haven't had enough Start a Puzzle at that point, go over to the YouTube and type in Start a Puzzle. Did you hear we started a TV show? That's right, a show about startups, and the show is a startup. We're getting it figured out as the weeks go by. All right, so... Once again, Patrick Sullivan, the CEO and co-founder of Bonsai, joined Bonsai.co. Company's out of New York. Patrick's joining us from Raleigh, North Carolina today, which, by the way, is really close to Chapel Hill. And congratulations on Roy Williams and his retirement with the Tar Heels. Couldn't be a Kansas fan without throwing that in there. So the Founders Freestyle is gonna is how we end the shows, Patrick. And I want to hear what your advice is. Like, what's your what's your freestyle advice on on explaining startups and helping those listening be in a good spot if they find themselves in that conversation down the road? You know, the one the, the lesson I learned is some things that I've learned in the startup world: innovate fast, help faster. You know, train, train your people to leave, excite them to stay. That's a critical lesson um, that I learned. Um, and really be hyper-focused on multiple fronts, but as the CEO, know, you know, it's part of your job and your role to have, whether it's a partnership conversation or potentially one day an exit, thinking about that and positioning yourselves and making yourself valuable to an acquiring company. And, you know, that's part 
of what my job is and my role is to do that. And, you know, I'm very fortunate that I can have these conversations back to Matt. You said I was in the music industry. My first company was in the music tech. So I have relationships that I built over my 20 plus career. And I was able to unpack and connect with people very early and to talk to them. And then similarly with my, my second company. So having those conversations, you know, and make sure you always surround yourself with people smarter than you and listening to shows like uh, this podcast, Startup Hustle, because it's super helpful and informative. Where I wish I had had this show back when I was starting my first company. You know, I, I had to learn, the, you know, the uh, startups for dummies and M&A for dummies. I was, you know, you know it's a lonely world, but uh, I was able to figure out a lot of things and learn a lot of things by listening and learning from others. But by the way, preach, brother, preach, because I'm I I don't like to say I'm old. I'm experienced at this point, turning 46 in 2021. And you know, when I started doing this stuff, like I don't even remember the term startup being a term. I mean, it had had come around, but you know, 10, 12 years ago, uh, Facebook had just come out. You know, and, uh, you know, you talk about that being one of the biggest companies in the world. I think overall, if you're going to if you're going to even if you even want to get to the exit conversation, you need to focus on building something that's bigger than you, meaning like it operates without you. It's it's uh, it's got more people and parts and pieces and components that if you weren't there it still has value. Now, I mentioned leaving a business at the end of 2016. It wasn't much of an exit because there wasn't a whole lot to exit. Uh, and that's a different kind of company. You need to look at the kind of company you're creating and think about who, when, and where it will and can and could create value for down the road. And I think overall, while the stars can be in your eyes when it comes to an exit, you got to still focus on being really fucking good at something, people. Like, like, don't try to be great at eight things before you try to be great at one. And if you've listened to this show regularly, that might be like the 300th time I've said that because it's really that important. Like, I see so many people come in and they say, we're going to exit. We're going to do these eight different things and blah, 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 blah. And then they proceed to water down everything they do by trying to be great at eight things. Pick one, maybe two at best. And see where you're at. And I, you know, I normally don't throw it back to the guests, but I'm sensing that Patrick has something to say about that. Because when I when I mentioned be great at one good thing before you're great at something, dude sat up in his chair. So Patrick, I know you got something to add there. No, I was, it's funny. A guy, a very famous investor, sat in a room with me. He goes, "Are you a vitamin or a painkiller?" And at the time when we were thinking around the strategies, we were a vitamin and fucking no one, people don't take vitamins every day. You know, they take painkillers. Yeah. And so, you know, and that lesson was do one thing great. And that's why we hyper-focused on the business and really leaned in on becoming, you know, the best in, you know, business of rights management. And that's why Google acquired us. So we learned that lesson, you know, you know, be great at one thing, you know, and, uh, and, uh, and simplify, you know, as a, where your product and be a painkiller, be something people need to use every day. Um, and I think it's a good distinguisher between your company and the ones that will succeed and win. Yeah. If you're not, if you don't learn to, if you don't learn and become great, I mean, I mean, aces people like be the best. And, you know, as the founder of Gigabook, I throw myself under the bus because I, you know, Gigabook's online scheduling, you used it to book your time on the show. I remember when Calendly came out, Calendly, who just raised money at a $3 billion valuation. And we looked at it and we were like, ah, God, all they do is they're just a bridge to Google Calendar. 
Yeah, well, they got really, really good at it. They got <laughs> really, really good at it while we were trying to get good at like 10 different things. And guess what? We did get good at 10 different things, but certainly not to the tune of a $3 billion valuation. Going back and looking at it, being laser focused on one thing and then you can you can fan out but if it's a if it's a if it's a widespread need and the total addressable market's big then being aces at one thing i'll, I'll get it done so patrick thanks again for joining me i'm going to catch up with you down the road and i'm ready to talk a little bit about the music the music business so i'm going to end this episode cool matt thank you for having me and thanks yep. for Startup Hustles brought to you by Fullscale.io, helping you build a software team quickly and affordably. Make sure you reach down and hit that subscribe button, then come find us on Instagram. See you next time.